You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Dave, would you come and share the word the Lord's put on your heart for us today? Heavenly Father, even as we were in your presence and hearing our sister touched by your spirit, laughing in your presence, uh, we just thank you so much, Father, for the joy that you give us the overwhelming joy even in the midst of incredibly hard circumstances. Father, we pray that you would continue to just anchor us in you and anchor us in your joy. Father, we think particularly right now of the Posadas as we have heard that uh, Ava's mom who is in the hospital uh, with COVID is not doing well um, and is likely not to survive this. Father, we see this as obviously an incredibly, uh, incredibly difficult circumstance. But we just thank you, Father, that you are in the midst. We thank you that you are present. We pray that you would be powerfully revealing yourself to Ava's mom. We pray that you would be strongly comforting all the members of the family. But we pray particularly for Ava uh, and Ephraim as they are so dear to us. God, we thank you that even in the midst of such incredibly sorrowful circumstances and incredibly challenging circumstances, that you bring us joy, that you bring us joy, not from those circumstances, but from you in the middle of those circumstances. And so, Father, we heard that laughter, and and Lord, we thank you for it, because it's a reminder that you are the God that gives us joy. You are the God that lifts our burdens. You are the God that carries our loads for us. And Father, you know there are so many, so many in our midst that are facing such incredibly challenging circumstances. So many, Lord God, that are just feeling Uh, the weight of this world and the weight of the sin around us and the heaviness that this life can bring. And so, Father, we do thank you that you are the one that, that lifts those things from us. Jesus, when you went to the cross, you took our sins and you took our burdens. You took those things upon yourself. And we are so grateful to you, so grateful to you for that. And so now, Father, as we just take some time to consider your word, to consider what you want to share with us through your word, as always, Lord, we pray that you would make us attentive, that you would make us attentive to your voice, to hear what you are saying, 
Father, and, and not just attentive, but make us responsive. If even as we were looking at uh, James earlier in the week, that we want to not only hear what you are saying, but we want to do what it is that you are asking of us. And so we pray, Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that that is what you would find in each one of us. Hearts that are willing to hear and then hearts that are willing to respond, that are willing to do the things that you ask of us. And Father, in this time that we are spending together right now, I just pray for each one of us. I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that you would increase our faith. Lord, as we look to you and as we look to your word, we pray that you would increase our faith. Help us to trust you even more. Help us to surrender ourselves, all the situations in which we find ourselves. Help us to surrender these things to you, to allow you to prove yourself God, to allow you once again to prove yourself faithful. And Lord, in the end, we will see your hand and we will know that it was you all along. It was you, Lord, at work all along. And we will worship. We will worship you now and we will worship you then when all things are revealed and your work of salvation is brought to completion. Then we will spend all eternity worshiping you. And so we thank you for that. And so, Jesus, it is in your name and it is for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. 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 Well, it's good to see you here this morning. For those of you who braved the winter weather, thank you for making it out. And of course, I don't know who you are that's on Zoom, but I trust there's somebody on Zoom. Is there somebody on Zoom, Carl? There's one person on Zoom. That's what Carl said. He's given me the thumbs up one person on Zoom. So thank you, whoever you are on Zoom. No, I'm teasing. I think there's probably more than one of you. I mean, the storm that we got was okay. I mean, I certainly am not going to complain when we get some cold weather and snow, but it really was, was not as, as much as it could have been, unfortunately. So, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I would embrace that wholeheartedly. I must admit, though, I was out yesterday shoveling a little bit and scraping off the cars, and my gloves got wet right away. And after only being out like, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes, I couldn't feel my fingers anymore. I guess it was colder yesterday than I thought. So, yeah, I really shouldn't complain. I should never complain. The snow is beautiful, as Ted reminded us. It's, a, it's a, one of the many, many ways that God reveals the beauty of his creation to us. So thank you for those of you who have shoveled out and made your way here. And seriously, thank you for the folks who are on Zoom. Appreciate that as well. Um, I also wanted to thank all of you for your prayers for my recent trip to Iquitos, Peru. Um, I'm sorry I was not with you folks last Sunday. I actually got back late Saturday night and had about a 28-hour trip back from Iquitos and only got about an hour of sleep in Lima Airport. I did have every intention of being here <laughs> last Sunday, 
but uh, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. So the body stayed in bed till about 11. But fortunately, I was able to hear Ephraim's message last week. Hopefully, many of you were here in person to hear that or caught it on Zoom as, as uh, Seema and Miriam and I did. Uh, it, was a, it was a powerful, powerful message. Um, I really feel like Ephraim is, is incredibly anointed in the midst of the very challenging things that he and his family are facing. Uh, as you just heard me pray, uh, they got word that uh, Ava's mom is probably not going to survive the bout of COVID that she has. Uh, they got that word in the middle of the night last night. So he actually came here and opened everything up and got everything set. But he and Ava are obviously going to spend some time with family. So just continue to pray for them. Um, but a very, very powerful message. Um, but again, thank you so much for all the prayers for the trip to Peru. Um, everything went incredibly, incredibly well. Um, got there no problem, got back no problem, even though the trips were long. Um, was able to share in some of the churches. Um, Pastor Ramon and his wife Teresa, many of you uh, remember them. Uh, they send their love and their greetings. Uh, Iglesia Philadelphia is doing well. Um, COVID certainly, as for all of the churches in Iquitos, uh, really put some strain on them. Um, but uh, folks are starting to come back. Uh, we had an incredible time together on Thursday night. Just a really blessed and anointed time. And next month, they are celebrating 50 years of Iglesia Philadelphia. So they're going to be gathering some folks together and have some special services, some special messages. So really, really grateful for that. Um, the Tuesday night service that I went to, actually, I was able to share in one of the churches that lost their pastor uh, to COVID. Uh, I did not realize it until I was actually there. But remember, we were hearing in the peak of the COVID uh, outbreak that Iquitos was being hit hard. Um, the mission and the ministry actually lost quite a few uh, pastors and ministers of the gospel. And so was able to actually share at this uh, church. Um, it's called Bethlehem of Judah. It's a very uh, interesting name for a congregation. But they had lost their, their pastor. Um, his widow was there taking on some leadership responsibilities. Um, there's a team of really, really excited young people there that are stepping up, taking on more leadership responsibilities. But it was a blessing just to be able to, to share with folks who have obviously really gone through um, a particularly challenging pandemic. Um, and then, of course, the bulk of the time was at the Bible school right there at the mission. Um, we were meeting uh, every morning, Monday to Friday, from about 9.30 to 12.30. Um, by Tuesday afternoon, I had lost my voice, uh, which seems to happen almost every time I go. Um, I guess I don't talk that much here. I feel like I talk a lot here. But uh, my translator as well, his voice was getting a little raspy, and we were praying for the Lord to give our voices strength, and in fact, he did carry us through the week. Um, ended up doing some stuff with Old Testament Introduction. I got an opportunity to meet the new director of the Bible school there. She's a wonderful lady, obviously doing an amazing job. Um, but when I met her on Monday afternoon, she asked if maybe I could do things a little bit differently than what she had originally suggested. And I said, yeah, that's fine. You know, we're, we're, we're there to, to serve you. We're there to serve the Lord. And whatever is of greatest benefit to you and the students, that's what I want to do. So we ended up doing most of the week uh, an extensive introduction to the Old Testament. Um, you know, I should have counted because people always ask, but I didn't count. Um, but I think there was probably about 80 to 100 students. That's 
my guess. Um, next time I'll try to remember to count. So when someone says, well, how many students are in the school right now? I can tell you, well, there were, but I don't know for sure. Um, but it was wonderful. I mean, it was wonderful. Most of them are young. Most of them, I would say, are between the ages of 18, 22, 23, 24, in that range. Um, but there were others that were older. Uh, there was one woman who came up to me uh, later on in the week and showed me pictures of her grandchildren. She was very excited to have me see them. She was actually, I, just from looking at her, one of the more attentive, uh, very responsive students. There were a couple of gentlemen there who were also older, a couple of married couples. We had a couple of little infants in our midst as married couples were uh, trying to receive the word of the Lord as well. Um, but it was a wonderful time. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, COVID definitely makes travel a little more complicated. Uh, a few more things that had to get sorted out, a few more things that had to happen. Um, wasn't quite sure that I had everything in place, but uh, ultimately, by the Lord's grace, I did. Um, and, and in the end, it really is him that opens the door. You know, I was getting a COVID test just a couple hours before I started my return flight, and I thought, well, you know, if I test positive, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not allowed to go anywhere. And I thought, well, Lord, you know, if that's what you have, then that's what you have. I'll just spend another week here, and if they want me to teach another week at the Bible school, I'll come up with something. But, you know, it's, it's just an incredible reminder that, you know, our lives are always in his hands. And I know for me, when I kind of know the circumstance or feel like I'm kind of in control of the circumstance, um, I sometimes lose track of that. But when you're in a situation where you're just reminded that you have absolutely no control of the result, the Lord reminds you, well, I've always been in control. I've always been in control. And so that was one of the lessons that the Lord was really putting in front of me um, during my time in Iquitos, is that, look, he's always in control. You know, whether, whether I'm sitting comfortably in my house in, in, in Philadelphia or whether I'm in the Southern Hemisphere, you know, down ministering with a, a, a mission, it, he's always in control. He's always un in control. And whatever ultimately unfolds as our days unfold, he has the final say. He has the final say. And so it was a real reminder to me that whatever my circumstance, whether I think, you know, I've sorted everything out, whether I think I've got all, you know, the, the things lined up or not, he's in control. He's in control. But just to tell you kind of the, the, the nature, the, the, the gentleman who does most of the translating for me, his name is Freddie. He's a, a wonderful guy, married, has two young kids, got some chance to spend time with him and his family, which was a real blessing. Um, but he kind of hosts the teams. He hosts the guys that come down because he's fluent in Spanish and English, and he kind of coordinates things. So he was the one that knew the clinic to go to that gives you COVID results in an hour. And apparently there were a couple pastors down there, I forget when he said, maybe November, December, and they were a little bit nervous about their COVID test. And so they were talking a lot during the week, man, you know, I hope we test negative, man, I hope we test negative. You know, they were really like feeling the weight of it, man, if we test positive, we're not going anywhere, what's going to happen? So Freddie, he actually, you know, is the one that arranges everything at the clinic, so this guy... He comes out and he totally teases these pastors and he looks at them and he says, well, I have some bad news. One of you's tested positive. <laughs> and apparently the pastors did not find that too funny. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I'm joking. You both tested negative. So, but he's a great guy. He's obviously, he's got a great sense of humor. Well, I, I think 
that's a great sense of humor. Maybe some of you would not find that as humorous, but does an amazing job, you know, when you're sharing the word. It really is one of those situations where you can just completely, totally, 100% concentrate on the word that's being shared because he's doing such an amazing job translating it. And of course, as with all good translators of the word, he's not just trying to get the Spanish right. He really is excited to be sharing the word of the Lord as well. And so really a blessing to be able to spend the week with him, obviously very anointed, very gifted. But all of the folks that I meet down there, uh, the pastor who is the president of the mission, Pastor Guido, you know, he had an incredibly difficult time, had dengue and COVID at the same time, and then got COVID a second time, <laughs> just, but I mean, he's plugging along, he's plugging along, and they're planning for the upcoming year, and they're planning for the things that the Lord wants to do. You know, Mepi is always very much focused on the Lord, very much forward thinking, very much wanting to see the work of the Lord continue to grow in that part of the world. So, so anyways, thank you so much for all of you who were praying. Uh, thank you for the incredible support that was uh, given as well. Uh, it really is just an amazing blessing for me, you know, because pretty much all I'm doing there is, is preaching or teaching or thinking about my next preaching or teaching. Uh, the mission did not have internet, uh, so there was no Wi-Fi, not that it would distract me that much anyways. I brought a Rubik's Cube, so, you know, I'd work on my Rubik's Cube a little bit and go out and watch the, the guys play soccer or the young ladies play soccer, sometimes go to the plaza. But it's nice because it's just a relatively, completely, totally undistracted time. You know, for that week, all you're really focusing on is, okay, Lord, what, what is it that you want to share? You know, what is your heart for these students? What is your heart for this congregation that we're going to be sharing at? So it's a real blessing. It's a real blessing. So Lord willing, the Lord's going to continue to open that door. And of course, as I always say when I get back from one of these trips, we are connected with uh, a lot of folks who are doing amazing ministry all around the globe. And if you sense that the Lord is possibly nudging you to consider heading off in one of those directions to one of those areas, please don't hesitate to, to pursue that. You know, one of the greatest blessings of my life has been being able to partner with some of our long-term ministry partners around the globe, just to go and be encouraged, to go and be blessed, just to go and see some of the things that the Lord is doing. So if he's putting something in your heart, uh, put that before the Lord and say, Lord, maybe you're asking me to uh, consider something like that. So, but anyways, thank you for letting me give you a, a couple minutes update. Um, again, just really, really appreciate the prayers. They make all the difference. So what we're going to look at today is actually the end of 1 Kings. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Kings. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Carl preached from 1 Kings chapter 3. Uh, again, an excellent, excellent message and a good introduction to the books of, of, of 1 and 2 Kings. Then as we already mentioned last week, Ephraim was in 1 Kings 8 and then a little bit in 1 Kings 9. Just an incredibly powerful and anointed time looking at the word. Uh, according to our reading schedule, we are reading 1 Kings 21 today. And then tomorrow we will read 1 Kings 22. So as Ted Lewis often does, I'm going to do a little bit of your work for you. And we are going to read a, a fairly large chunk of 1 Kings 22 together. This is actually one of my favorite passages from 1 Kings. 1 Kings 13 is, is another one of my favorites. So I was thinking about 
maybe trying to share on that, but decided to do 1 Kings 22. Um, when I was growing up and, and had accepted the Lord uh, relatively re recently, I accepted the Lord when I was 15 and started reading the Bible because I'd never really read it before that. There was a lot of the Bible that I really had trouble tracking with, a lot of the Bible that was very confusing for me. I mean, when I read the book of Revelation for the first time, I had no idea what I was reading. Like the Apostle Peter, when I was reading the Apostle Paul, some of the things that our dear brother Paul writes are hard to understand. Uh, I certainly resonated with Peter's evaluation of, of Paul's letters. So there was a lot of things in Scripture that I really had trouble tracking with. The Old Testament prophets, you know, that's actually where I kind of ground to a halt. I got about halfway through Isaiah, and, and it was years before I finished Isaiah. Um, but for whatever reason, I always loved Kings. Maybe just because it was narrative, it was story, I could kind of track with it. Maybe just because of the relative simplicity of a lot of the valuations, the king is either good or he's evil. That's it. He either did what was right in the Lord's eyes or he sinned in the Lord's eyes. But then there also were these amazing characters, Elijah and Elisha. And, and as we just read in 1 Kings 17, Elijah literally appears out of nowhere. I mean, we're not told any of his backstory where, you know, he came from, what he was up to. It's just all of a sudden, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, and then Elijah the Tishbite, you know, and, and there he is. And then you have so much of the, the, the middle of the book of Kings focusing on these two just incredible, incredible individuals. You know, the only person in Scripture with more recorded miracles than Elisha is Jesus Christ himself. So as I was, I was young in the Lord and struggling to understand a lot of the word, uh, Kings was just, it, it was quickly becoming, you know, two of my favorite books of the Bible. And I found myself frequently just going back and rereading, you know, the stories of the Kings. And so even as we've been reading it the last couple of weeks together, I've really, really enjoyed the stories of the Kings. Of course, some of the stories are incredibly disheartening. Some of the stories are incredibly disappointing. But one of the central themes for the book of Kings is as the king goes, so go the people. As the king goes, so go the people. When you have a godly king who's trying to serve the Lord, then the nation walks in relative obedience. And when you have an ungodly king who really has no interest in serving the Lord, the people walk in disobedience. And of course, all of that is pushing us, pushing us, pushing us forward to Jesus. Because now we have not just a good king, now we have the perfect king. And because we have the perfect king, we have every opportunity to walk in obedience. The Old Testament saints, not necessarily. You know, if you were under the reign of Manasseh, or if you were under the reign of Rehoboam, who we just read about a couple of weeks ago, you know, you were going to have a hard time serving the Lord because your king was not interested in serving the Lord. So praise God, Jesus has come, the perfect king, the king of kings. And now, ultimately, we have been given every opportunity to walk in obedience because we have the perfect king seated on the throne of David forever. So as we read sort of the, 
up and down history of Judah and the mostly down history of Israel, one of the things that we should be thinking is how incredibly privileged we are to be living in the time where the King of Kings has come, has died, has risen, and is seated on his Father's throne at the right hand. What a blessing to be in his kingdom. What a blessing to be able to bow the knee to him, to call him our king, because he leads perfectly, and we should be so grateful to him for that. But anyways, 1 Kings chapter 22, 1 Kings chapter 22, this is the end of the book of 1 Kings. Originally, Kings was probably not uh, meant to be two books, probably just because of its length. It had to be divided. It was hard to have a book as long as 1 and 2 Kings on a single scroll because writing implements in the ancient world were much different than what we have today. So even though there's a pause for us between 1 and 2 Kings, it obviously is meant to be seen as a continuous narrative. So we're going to read a good, good chunk of 1 Kings 22. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 38. Now, I know it's easy if you're just listening to me read to kind of zone out. Um, I would just strongly encourage you to do everything you can not to do that. Um, I remember years ago we had a speaker at the Rock Retreat who said, you know, it's hard. I know when someone else is reading the words, you kind of zone out and you don't pay attention as much as you should. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's really true. Unfortunately, that's really true. So particularly for those of you who are on Zoom, it, it is an amazing, amazing story we're about to read. It's, it's very engaging. But I would just encourage you, do everything you can to be attentive to the word of the Lord. So 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. It says, For three, year for three years there was no war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel had said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And yet we are not doing anything to retake it from the king of Aram. So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. 
Now Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he never prophesies anything good about me, but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in your inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Amon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash the king's son, and say, this is what the king says, put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, Mark my words, all you people. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone, small or great, except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him. 
But when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. The king told his chariot driver, wheel around and get out of the fighting. I've been wounded. All day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. The blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died. As the sun was setting, a cry spread through the army. Every man to his own town, everyone to his own land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. And they washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, where the prostitutes bathed. And the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared. So let's take some time now to consider some of the things that are happening in this account. First of all, what an amazing story, right? I mean, like I say, one of my favorite stories from the books of First and Second Kings. And we have this incredible, you know, stage of interesting characters. You know, we have Jehoshaphat, a good king, a godly king, a king who tried to serve the Lord with all of his heart, making some pretty foolish decisions, aligning himself with a, a godless king, committing himself and his armies to that king's cause, not really realizing what Ahab was doing when he says, I'm going to disguise myself going into battle. So we have, we have Jehoshaphat. Then, of course, we have Ahab, an incredibly, incredibly challenging character. As he's given to us in the book of Kings, you know, it's, it's told to us that he was worse than any king who reigned before him. He completely sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And yet, when confronted with the absolute destruction of his entire household, he repents. And God actually acknowledges that repentance. But then, of course, as we see here in chapter 22, that repentance was short-lived or certainly not ultimately to the very core of his being. You have this incredible entourage of prophets, one as colorful as Zedekiah, who's made even a prop to convince the king of the veracity of his message. And then, of course, you have Micaiah, this otherwise unknown prophet who simply kind of is brought forth and speaks the word of the Lord and then is returned, unfortunately, to prison, uh, awaiting the return of a king who's going to die in battle. So you have all these incredibly colorful and somewhat complex characters that make up the account of 1 Kings 22. But as I was considering it and considering what message the Lord might want me to bring from this, I really want us to consider something else as the central character of 1 Kings 22. And what I want us to consider as the central character of 1 Kings 22, it's not Jehoshaphat, not Ahab, not the 400 prophets, not Zedekiah, not even Micaiah himself. But what I want us to consider as the central character of 1 Kings 22 is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. And I want us to consider this because I really believe more than anything else, 1 Kings chapter 22 is about the word of the Lord. Now, I told you earlier that 1 Kings 13 is one of my favorite also stories from 1 Kings. And it's a puzzling. It's the one where the, the, the man of God and the old prophet have that encounter and the 
the, the man of God disobeys and is mauled by a lion. What I want you to do is go back and read 1 Kings 13 and make all of the human characters somewhat secondary and read 1 Kings 13 and make the word of the Lord the central character as you read 1 Kings 13. Because I think 1 Kings 13 begins to make at least a little bit more sense if we kind of make the human character secondary and really put at the forefront the word of the Lord. And so that's what I want us to do as we take some time now to consider a bit more carefully what we re just read in 1 Kings 22. We are going to use the different characters, but ultimately use the different characters to highlight what I believe is the central character, the word of the Lord. So we have these two kings, Ahab the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah, and they have now aligned themselves to go out to battle against the Arameans. There's been peace for three years. Remember, the Lord completely destroyed the Aramean armies on two occasions earlier in 1 Kings chapter 20. So there's been relative peace. And we see here that it's not Aram that is instigating this battle. It is Ahab. It is Ahab. And as they are preparing for battle, even though it's on Ahab's terms and it's in Ahab's threshing floor and Ahab is the one calling the shot, it's Jehoshaphat that says, we should inquire of the Lord. So as 1 Kings 22 begins to unfold, we as readers are asking the question, is the word of the Lord even going to be heard? Is the word of the Lord even going to be heard? Because it's clear that Ahab is not going to ask for it. It's clear that at this point, whatever measure of repentance he experienced earlier, it's not really carrying a lasting impact on him. And it isn't his idea to inquire of the Lord. It's Jehoshaphat's. And Jehoshaphat realizes that something as significant as entering into a battlefield should not be done without first inquiring of the Lord. So the first sort of unsettling aspect of 1 Kings 22 is simply the question, is the word of the Lord going to be heard? Is the word of the Lord going to be heard? Is there going to be an opportunity for the word of the Lord to go forth so that people may respond to it? Now, of course, as we as li are living our daily lives, there's a lot of things that we do. There's a lot of things we do that are very routine and very ordinary. There are some things that we do that are a bit more unique or a bit more irregular. But one of the things that we should always, always, always be attentive to is the word of the Lord. Will the word of the Lord be heard? Will the word of the Lord be heard? Will we put ourselves in a position where we are actively seeking to know and hear and understand the word of the Lord. I think sometimes, like Ahab, we find ourselves in the position, probably not nearly as, 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 as uh, callous as Ahab was, but we just find ourselves kind of doing the things that we do and maybe not really pausing to saying, okay, Lord, what are you saying? Okay, Lord, what is your word to me in this circumstance? Now, of course, when we have like a really, really big situation, like considering a new job or considering what school we're going to go to or something like that, of course we seek the Lord and of course we want to hear the word of the Lord. But I would, I would say as, as followers of Christ, we want to hear the word of the Lord much more regularly than that. We want to hear the word of the Lord on a regular basis, on a daily basis. 
And so the first sort of unsettling aspect of this story is, will the word of the Lord even be heard? We're not even introduced to Micaiah at the beginning. And we're simply told that Ahab has made a decision to go up to battle. He hasn't sought the Lord. He hasn't asked the Lord, should we go? It's a decision that he has already made. And so, of course, sometimes we see that as well. We make a decision, and then we just kind of want the Lord to rubber stamp it. Okay, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, Lord, please bless me as I go. And again, you know, our Father is amazing. Our Father is wonderful, and our Father wants us to talk to him all the time. But I would say, as we mature in our faith, as we mature in our relationship with the Lord, that, that, that tendency to kind of make decisions on our own and then just ask the Lord to bless them as we go or after the fact, that kind of diminishes. And we really kind of find that we really want to be seeking the word of the Lord as we are in the process of making the decision, even before we are stepping out. Something that Ahab did not, but Jehoshaphat, again, he, he is a godly king. So he says, shouldn't we, or let's inquire of the Lord. So initially, we are not certain, is the word of the Lord going to be heard? But Ahab, I mean, somewhat surprisingly, he's not, he's not just simply a, a, a nasty dude who always does the wrong thing. Ahab, somewhat surprisingly, says, yeah, absolutely. And then he calls together this incredible entourage of prophets. We are told there's actually 400 prophets now before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Ordinarily, this would be a gathering that would be in the court of the king. We are actually told that Jehoshaphat and Ahab were not in the court. They were on a threshing floor, which was at the gate of Samaria. Maybe it was cooler at that time of the year. Um, maybe it was a convenient place to meet. We don't know for sure. But this large group of 400 prophets gathered to give Ahab and Jehoshaphat the word of the Lord. Now, of course, when we hear that number 400, we may think of an earlier account in 1 Kings. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah approached King Ahab and said, let's also have a gathering. Let's have a gathering of 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah or Asherah. So we see here there is a theme in Kings to a large group of prophets. On this case, it's 400 prophets. And these are not prophets of Baal. And these are not prophets of Asherah. In fact, as we hear their message, we hear that they are prophesying in the name of the Lord. So that makes things a little bit more complex, a little bit more confusing, because they're not coming in and saying, hey, Baal says, or Asherah says, or Chemosh says, or Moloch says. They're not prophesying in the name of one of the foreign gods that the nations around Israel worshipped, and unfortunately, frequently, Israel herself worshipped. They are prophesying in the name of the Lord. And there is real agreement. It says all 400 prophesied the same thing. All 400 said, Ahab, go up. The Lord will surely give you Ramoth Gilead. So we have here on the one side 400. And then, of course, as the story unfolds, there is another. It's very interesting because we don't know why, but as Jehoshaphat hears the prophetic assurance of the 400, he is unconvinced. And the narrator of Kings does not give us a clue as to why. But he 
is unconvinced. And so as, as Ahab is excited about his 400 unison-voiced prophets telling him that he will surely be victorious, that the Lord has surely given him the city of Ramoth-Gilead, Jehoshaphat senses that something is not right. One of the many unanswerable questions. How did Jehoshaphat know? But he did. So he presses King Ahab a little further and says, hey, isn't there yet a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of? Isn't there more than the 400? Now you would think, again, on the surface, you would think 400 is plenty. You know, you could almost imagine Ahab saying, you know, look, Jehoshaphat, what do you want? We got, we got 400 prophets here. They're all saying the same thing. I mean, isn't that enough? Isn't that a, a, enough of a majority? And Jehoshaphat obviously was aware that this was not. And he said, isn't there another? And of course, now we are introduced to Micaiah. And Ahab says, yeah, well, there is another guy, but I hate him because he never prophesies good. Well, you could see why those 400 were given free access to the king of Israel because they were obviously in the habit of telling King Ahab the things that he wanted to hear. But there was another, Micaiah, whose name like Micah means who is like the Lord. What an incredibly powerful name, Micaiah and Micah, variants of the same name, who is like the Lord. And Ahab says, you know, we can call him, but I don't like him. Because all he ever says about me is bad. And so I don't really want to hear what he has to say. And, and Jehoshaphat's like, no, no, don't say that. Don't say that. Let, let's get him. So they call him. And of course, what we have here is the stage being set for 400 versus 1. Will the word of the Lord prevail? Will the word of the Lord prevail? If you're looking at sheer numbers, you're going to say absolutely not. How can the word of the Lord with a sole advocate stand against a multitude of 400? So the first tension or unsettling aspect to this story was the question, is the word of the Lord even going to be heard? But then what we see is that the word of the Lord is going to face staggering, staggering odds. The word of the Lord is going to have a sole mouthpiece, a single advocate, versus a throng of 400. Certainly, that's not going to go well. If you're just simply looking at the numbers, 400 versus 1. In most situations, if you were forced to choose who's going to prevail, 400 or one, we would almost always choose 400. And so again, the circumstance is not looking good. The circumstance is not looking good. By sheer numbers, the word of the Lord seems outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered. Then as Micaiah is being sent for, we see another attack against the word of the Lord. Because the messenger who was sent from King Ahab, as he's getting Micaiah, we're not told explicitly whether he was in prison. He probably was, because later we're told that he is to return to the city where he was, and he goes to prison. So he was probably in prison. If not, he was certainly not in the king's good graces, because he was not part of the 400 
who were telling him to go up. But as the messenger is getting Micaiah, he says, look, don't be a troublemaker. Don't be a troublemaker. All 400 of the king's prophets are prophesying favorably about this imminent attack on Ramoth Gilead. Just say the same thing. Just go along with the crowd. Don't rock the boat. Don't cause problems. Don't be difficult. And so again, the word of the Lord is being attacked because the messenger is being attacked. There is a threat now. There is pressure that is being applied on the messenger. Will the word of the Lord be able to withstand that? And of course, we are constantly, constantly, constantly feeling pressure. Feeling that external pressure from the Lord. Excuse me, from the world in regard to the Lord. The world is constantly pressuring us. Just go along. Just agree. Don't be difficult. Don't be contrary. Just go along with what the 400 are saying. There's constant, constant pressure on us and ultimately on the word of the Lord that is in us and the word of the Lord that he wants to bring out through us. Because the world even more is trying to get us to say what the crowd is saying. So as the messenger is being coerced, as the messenger is being pressured, will that compromise the word of the Lord? Will that compromise the word of the Lord? Well, of course, initially, Micaiah's response is exactly what we would hope it would be. I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. So it seems that the messenger is going to stand firm against that pressure, and the word of the Lord will go forth. Well, one of the more surprising aspects of 1 Kings 22 is Micaiah is brought into the presence of King Ahab and Jehoshaphat, and Ahab says, should I go up and fight Ramoth Gilead? And what does Micaiah say? He says, absolutely, king, go up. The Lord's given it to you. Now, you're, you're thinking to yourself, now, wait a second. Were the 400 right? As a reader reading this account for the first time, you're a little bit confused. And even as a reader reading it for maybe the hundredth time, you're probably still a little bit confused because you're like, well, wait a second. He just told the messenger, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. And what are the first words out of his mouth? Absolutely, Ahab, go up. The Lord has given you the city. Well, something obviously is going on here that's a little bit beyond what the narrator is reporting to us. Now, because I can be a little sarcastic at times, I know you guys find that hard to believe, but occasionally I'm a little sarcastic, I think probably Micaiah was seeing this with an incredible amount of sarcasm. I think it was clear probably from his tone and probably from his gestures that what he was saying was not at all what the Lord was saying. Because again, even someone as out of step with the word of the Lord as Ahab, how does Ahab immediately respond? Okay, how many times have I told you 
tell me the truth. So whatever was going on in that initial response of Micaiah, it was clear to Ahab and probably to the rest that what he was saying was not really what the Lord was saying. But it's one of these really engaging aspects of this account. And like I say, I like to think Micaiah was probably being a little bit snarky, to use the modern word to describe sarcasm. Because later, when Zedekiah slaps him and says, how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to you? Micaiah gives a very snarky answer. He says, you will know how the Spirit of the Lord went from you to me when you find yourself hiding in a dark inner room. Of course, we may not understand exactly what Micaiah was saying, but he was basically saying, when you prove to be a false prophet and are hiding for your life because you prove to be a false prophet, then you will understand <laughs> that if you ever had the Spirit of the Lord, which you probably didn't, that's how he went from you to me. So that's definitely a very sarcastic, very snarky response. So I think probably as Micaiah is saying, hey, Ahab, go up. Absolutely, the Lord's going to give you Ramoth Gilead. It's going to be a piece of cake. It's going to be a big victory parade. Everyone's going to love you. I think he's saying that incredibly sarcastically. And so Ahab says, hey, look, tell me the truth. But here we're given an opportunity to see the incredible double-mindedness of Ahab. Micaiah, I hate him because he never says anything good about me. So Micaiah comes into his presence, sarcastically says something good, and Ahab says, hey, Micaiah, how many times have I told you, tell me the truth? Isn't that an interesting double-mindedness that we see in Ahab? The conflicted conscience of a man who has not completely given himself to the Lord, but in fact has sold himself repeatedly to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. That incredible double-mindedness. I don't like him because he never says anything good about me. Oh, he said something good about me. Micaiah, how many times have I told you? Tell me the truth. An incredible double-mindedness that we see in Ahab. And it's a reminder that there is a heavy price to pay for committing ourselves to sin. There is a heavy price to pay for committing ourselves to sin. Ahab had sold himself repeatedly to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it was taking a heavy toll on him. He was incredibly double-minded. He was of two opinions. And of course, in James chapter 1, we get a strong counsel against that. That we as people of God are to be single-minded in our faith. We are to be single-minded in our devotion. Now, of course, we are always falling short of that, but that is our goal. That is our goal, to be single-minded in our devotion to the Lord, to be single-minded in our faith in Jesus Christ, not to be torn between two extremes as we see Ahab. Well, then Micaiah actually reveals what was really going on. And this becomes a, another very challenging aspect of this story because what Micaiah says is, look, I saw, I saw God seated on his throne. I saw the entire entourage of the angelic host before him. And the Lord was saying, who's going to entice Ahab to go up to Ramoth Gilead so that he can die on the battlefield? And one spirit said this, and one spirit said that, and then one spirit came forward and said, I'll entice him. And the Lord says, well, how are you going to do that? And this lying spirit says, oh, I'm going to go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. 
And the Lord says, okay, go. Do what you say you're going to do. You are going to succeed. Now, of course, for many of us, that's kind of a, a, a challenging, somewhat unexpected view into the throne room of God. As we are given Micaiah's vision, we maybe are probably not expecting lying spirits to be in the presence of the Lord. We maybe are not expecting lying spirits to be doing the bidding of the Lord. We may not even expect the Lord to be sending them forth and saying that you will succeed in what you are about to do, to be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. There's a lot of things about that that are a little unexpected, maybe a little unsettling for us. But when we think about it, maybe it's not quite as unsettling as we might imagine. Because in the beginning of the book of Job, we are given a very similar picture. It says the sons of God were presenting themselves before the Lord, and the Lord says to the accuser, the Satan, you know, where have you been? And the Satan says, well, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. And so there, Satan himself is having an audience with the Lord of heaven and earth before the presence of the Lord. And so we are given an idea that there's a lot more happening in the heavenly realm than we are given knowledge and awareness of. We are absolutely given glimpses of the spirit realm that is there. The spirit realm that is always there. The spirit realm that is all around us. And we are given everything that we need to know about it. But we certainly are not given what is exhaustive in our minds as to what we might want to know about it. But what ultimately we do know is that God is God of everything. He's the Lord of the heaven and the earth, the sea and the dry land. What we do know is that every knee bows ultimately to Jesus. And so in some sort of profound, sort of mysterious, somewhat unknown way to us, God can even use evil spirits to accomplish his purposes. Now initially, like I say, that may seem a little unsettling, but ultimately it reminds us that God is completely and totally in control. When Judas betrayed Jesus, who entered Judas the moment before he betrayed him? Satan. Satan. So the most incredible victory of the Lord, which was his death and resurrection, actually in his absolute sovereignty, in his infinite wisdom, in his complete control of every atom of his universe, he allowed Satan to have a hand in it. Now, he didn't allow Satan to have his way. He didn't allow Satan to triumph. He didn't allow Satan to ever be autonomous. But in the incredible, infinite wisdom of our God, he allowed his most hated enemy to have a hand in the redemption of the world. Because what it really reminds us of is God is really, really big. And God is really, really wise. And he is always a trillion steps ahead of his worst enemies. And the worst that Satan himself is doing to try to outmaneuver and to try to outthink and to try to ultimately undermine God and his purposes, he's been defeated really from all eternity past. Satan has been defeated from all eternity past. From a human standpoint, we are told repeatedly that God uses sinful individuals and God uses sinful empires to accomplish his purposes. He uses the sinful Assyrian Empire to bring his just judgment against Israel. We will read about that in 2 Kings chapter 17. 
He uses the sinful empire of Babylon to bring his just judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. We will read about that in 2 Kings 25. Using sinful entities, spirits, empires, individuals, does not even for a moment compromise the character of God. His character is always completely and totally beyond reproach. His character is unassailable. The fact that he uses sinful empires, the fact that he uses sinful individuals, the fact that he uses members of the demonic realm simply shows his absolute authority over everything. It doesn't compromise his character. It doesn't compromise his motives. It doesn't compromise his purity. It doesn't compromise his holiness. It doesn't compromise his perfection. It simply reminds us that he is Lord and that he is Lord of everything. If God didn't use sinful individuals, he wouldn't use us. He wouldn't use us. Now granted, hopefully there's a big difference between a lying demonic spirit and us. Hopefully we are aspiring to be obedient to the Lord. We are aspiring to love the Lord. We are aspiring to serve the Lord. But when you think about it, God only has one perfect vessel. That's his son, Jesus Christ. Everything else that God has been orchestrating from the beginning to the son's return has been using a fallen world and elements of a fallen world to accomplish his purposes. So bringing it back a bit more to the story of 1 Kings 22, Ahab was deserving of judgment. He was absolutely deserving of judgment. And as a sovereign, just, holy, omnipotent God, God was free to use whatever means he chose to bring about that just judgment against Ahab. And of course, here's the greatest irony of it all. Through the prophecy of Micaiah, the Lord is actually telling Ahab his strategy to entice him. Right? I mean, the curtain isn't just pulled back for us and Micaiah. The curtain is pulled back for Ahab. And standing right there on the threshing floor at the gate of the city of Samaria, Micaiah says, hey, look, this is what I saw. Ahab, what's going on here is a lying spirit has been sent from the Lord into the mouths of your prophets, and they are enticing you to go up to the battle because the Lord wants to kill you on the battlefield. So Ahab is absolutely being told everything. So even as the Lord uses a lying and deceiving spirit, he is compassionate enough he is gracious enough to tell the one who's being enticed, you are being enticed. You are being deceived. You are being tricked. And of course, we see that Ahab had sold himself so completely to sin that he still goes out to the battlefield. But doesn't that again just show the absolute sovereignty of the Lord? You know, if you are trying to have a surprise party for someone, and you're doing everything you can to make sure they don't find out. And somehow or another, they find out. You know, you're incredibly disappointed, and that spoils all your plans. Well, look at how sovereign the Lord is. He's sending a deceiving spirit into the mouth of the false prophets to deceive Ahab, and then Ahab finds out. And yet, the purposes of the Lord are still accomplished. See, one of the things about 1 Kings 22 is just an incredible reminder 
God's got this. He's, he's got this. He's got this. He's got your life. He's got your job. He's got your family. He's got our city. He's got the world. He's got this. He's got this. He's not saying, oh man, Micaiah, that was just for you. You weren't supposed to tell Ahab. How is Ahab going to be deceived if you tell him he's being deceived? That's not what God is doing at all. God's purposes are going forth. God's purposes are going forth. The word of the Lord is going forth. Well, we continue to see pressure on the word of the Lord because as the true word of the Lord goes from the mouth of Micaiah to the ears of Ahab, he is slapped and he is mocked. So the messenger is being pressured again. The messenger is being attacked again. And as the word of the Lord is heard, the messenger is sent back now to prison definitely on scant rations of bread and water, just enough to keep him alive. Can you stop the word of the Lord by trying to stop the messenger? Can you stop the word of the Lord by trying to persuade him, by trying to coerce him, by trying to convince him just to go along with the crowd? Can you stop the word of the Lord by attacking the messenger, by throwing the messenger in prison, by giving the messenger no hope of release? Can you stop the word of the Lord by stopping the messenger of the Lord? No. And you would think Satan, who is the most crafty of all of God's creatures, would have learned that over the last couple of thousands of years. Because one of Satan's favorite strategies to attack the word of the Lord is to attack the messenger of the word of the Lord. But the word of the Lord doesn't stop. The word of the Lord is not defeated. The word of the Lord is not thwarted. Unfortunately, tens of thousands of messengers have been tortured and killed and thrown in prison and threatened and persecuted in the twisted mind of the enemy thinking that if we just silence the messengers then the word of the Lord will be stopped. But the word of the Lord can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. And so one of the greatest encouragements that we have as messengers of the word of the Lord is let the world do to us whatever it wills. Let the kingdom of darkness do to us whatever it wills. Because we know the word of the Lord will triumph. The word of the Lord is unstoppable. It doesn't matter who the human players are. It doesn't matter what the demonic realm is doing. It doesn't matter. The word of the Lord is unstoppable. And that's what has given messengers of the word of the Lord for centuries courage and boldness and faith to step out in obedience and to face opposition and persecution and threat and coercion and manipulation and all of the things that the world and the kingdom of darkness throws at us to try to silence us. When we are absolutely convinced that the word of the Lord is unstoppable, that the word of the Lord will triumph, 
then we really start to adopt an attitude where we say, okay, whatever happens to me, the word of the Lord will win. Whatever happens to me will not stop the word of the Lord. And it gives us a, an incredibly different approach to how we live our daily life. Micaiah could have tried to protect himself. Micaiah could have said, you know, I'd love to eat at the king's table with those 400 prophets. So if I just agree with them, you know, maybe I'll, I'll get out of my prison clothes and maybe I'll get more than scant water and scant bread. But no, Micaiah committed himself to truthfully speak the word of the Lord and he paid a heavy price for it. But the enemy for centuries has thought if we just attack the messenger, then the message will be compromised. Never. The word of the Lord will triumph. The last and probably the most hilarious attack against the word of the Lord is Ahab, disguising himself. Okay? I mean, what, what a moron. What a moron. I mean, he actually thinks that he can outwit and outdo and win over the word of the Lord if he just disguises himself. Surely he won't die on the battlefield if he doesn't dress himself in full kingly regalia, which of course we see from verse 9, that's how he and Jehoshaphat were dressed. They were seated on their royal thrones with all of their royal robes, the best that each of their kingdoms had to offer in terms of wealth and jewels and fine clothing. The entire prophetic entourage was in front of them. And so Ahab says, hey, Jehoshaphat, you go out to battle dressed like that. I'm going to disguise myself. Now, again, why Jehoshaphat agrees to that? Godly king, not necessarily the wisest of kings, but certainly a godly king. And the Lord spared him. Because the king of Aram says to his 32 chariot drivers, do not fight against anyone except the king of Israel. And of course, they think Jehoshaphat's the king of Israel because he's dressed like a king cries out. It's interesting because in Chronicles, it actually says he cries out to the Lord. In Kings, it only says that he cries out. Interesting comparison there. And they realize somehow or another, they realize he's Jehoshaphat, not Ahab. They stop pursuing him. The Lord spares his life. But just look at the corrupted, twisted reasoning of Ahab. Don't really want to hear the word of the Lord, but I want Micaiah to tell me the truth. I know now that the Lord has sent a lying spirit into the mouth of the 400 and then he's destined me to die on the battlefield, but I think I can outwit him. I think I can outmaneuver the word of the Lord. If I disguise myself and, and stay in a safe part of the battlefield, surely I'll walk out of this alive. And of course, absolutely no way the narrator is going to let that happen because as he tells us that detail, it says an archer drew his bow at random. Well, anytime the Bible says at random, it doesn't mean at random. What it means is the sovereign hand of the Lord was on that archer. And the sovereign hand of the Lord was directing that arrow to find the exact gap in Ahab's armor and to pierce him with a mortal wound. Of course, of course, that's what the narrator means when he says at random. So in other words, there was no human explanation. There was no human machination. There was no human conniving or scheming that ultimately led to the death of Ahab. It was the triumph 
of the word of the Lord. No human scheming could stop it. No threat or persecution could stop it. No persuasion could stop it. No 400 crowd speaking against it could stop it. Even the uncertainty of whether it would be heard in the first place could not stop it. Why, why, why does the word of the Lord always prevail? Well, I think embedded in this story is one of the most powerful comparisons. And remember, we are told that Jehoshaphat and Ahab in their full kingly regalia, seated on their thrones with all of the host of the prophets and the armies of Israel and Judah gathered in front of them. What a spectacle. What, what a spectacle of two glorious, powerful, dazzling human kings. Well, remember when Micaiah shares what he saw. He saw a king. He saw a king seated on his throne. And he saw the entire host of heaven arrayed before him. So who's the real king? Jehoshaphat? No. Ahab? Definitely not. The real king is seated on his throne with all of the universe before him. The real king is seated on his throne with all of the universe at his beck and call. Why does the word of the Lord always prevail against every assault, against every threat, against every opposition, against every doubt, against every lie, against every human conniving and scheming? Why does the word of the Lord always triumph? Because the real king is still on his throne. And he always will be. And he always will be. That is the great assurance that we have. That is the great assurance that we have. We are constantly seeing threats to the Lord's truth, to the message of the gospel, to the truth of his word. We are constantly, constantly, constantly seeing relentless attacks from human enemies and spiritual adversaries. We are constantly seeing the word of the Lord under threat. We are constantly seeing the word of the Lord facing staggering natural odds. And yet with absolute confidence, we can always say the word of the Lord will triumph. Why? Because the king, the real king, is still on his throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so much just for the amazing story of, of, of the demise of Ahab and the incredible servant, the prophet Micaiah. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for the triumph of your word. Because more than anything else, that's what this story shows us. The human characters, they come and go. The faithful prophets, they play their part. The faithful kings, they play their part. The godless kings, they serve as the foils. The, the false prophets, the godless prophets, they play their part as well. But in the end, it's your word that continues. It's your word that is unstoppable. 
It is your word that in every circumstance ultimately triumphs and prevails. So I pray now, Lord, for each one of us. I pray that we would find incredible hope and incredible strength and incredible courage to know, Lord, that yes, the enemy is attacking us and the enemy is attacking you and the enemy is attacking your word. The enemy is attacking what you are saying, speaking the opposite, trying to question it, trying to silence it, attacking us as the messengers of it, trying to out-scheme it. But Lord, in the end, we know that all of these efforts will ultimately completely fail. Because God, you are seated on your throne. And Jesus, you are at the Father's right hand. And you are there waiting. You are waiting for your Father to make all of your enemies a stool beneath your feet. And no scheme of hell and no plan of fallen humanity, no natural circumstance, no supernatural circumstance can stop your word from triumphing. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will stand forever. And so we pray, Lord, that we would allow you daily to speak your word to us. We pray, Lord, that you would find us responsive to your word, not simply desiring to hear it, but wanting to live it. And we pray, Lord, that no matter what opposition we face, that we would do everything we can to be faithful messengers of your word. You have given us the opportunity to speak something that is eternal, You've given us the opportunity to speak what is powerful. You've given us the opportunity to speak your word, your truth, your gospel message. And no matter what threats are made to us, may we boldly and courageously speak your word because we know that it will triumph. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.